0: Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios.
1: We are bringing you the third part of our deep dive on Ethiopia. Now, if you do not know, this is a part of what is normally behind our Patreon paywall. We are releasing it to you so that you can listen to it and uh, get the opportunity to enjoy this story. Now, this is part three. There was a first part and a second part that we released last summer. However, if you have not listened to those earlier parts, you don't need to. You can jump into the story where it is, and you'll probably be able to pick up and understand what's going on. However, we do encourage you to go back and listen to those first and second parts. They cover the first 1,300 or so years of Christianity in Ethiopia. And this last episode kind of wraps up all those missing pieces and things that we've been going through. So it's great if you can listen to part one and two. I do think you could understand part three without them, without the layers. Uh, It won't be maybe quite as good. But just to set you up, if you haven't gone through part one and part two, Ethiopia is a somewhat Christian country that is in Africa. There have been times when spiritual fervor was very high, and there have been times when spiritual fervor wasn't really that high. And the Ethiopian empire was at one point very strong and had gotten weakened, almost completely destroyed uh, during the time of the Zagwe dynasty, just a little piece of the map. And then under the new dynasty that took back over, they just completely demolished their enemies and built themselves up into this giant kingdom. But at the same time, they really put forward the idea, the kings of Ethiopia really hammered in the idea that they were descended from, from King Solomon and King David they were the heirs of that reign they were kind of building a new Jerusalem and that they were not to be questioned they were you know God's anointed kings and that they themselves had the ark of the covenant and that Ethiopia was this new Christian empire in the in the middle of Africa and if you don't know the story again I highly encourage you to go listen to parts 1 and 2 where we go through how all of this kind of came to be But this is the world that we're stepping into. And in this episode, a man is going to challenge all of this. And he's going to say, hey, this doesn't look like uh, what I think the Bible is telling me to look like. And you are going to have, I think, a very difficult time not drawing parallels to this man, Estefanos in Ethiopia, who is the man who does this, and Martin Luther in the Reformation that happens in Europe. They have a lot of overlaps, a lot of similarities and yet, uh, there's one big key difference between their Reformations. And we talk about what that key difference is and how that goes. So this is the story of Ethiopia. This is the last part that we started on that series. Up until now, it's been in the Patreon where you could have found it. Uh, also behind the Patreon is our Joan of Arc deep dive where we go through and walk through her entire story and tell you and give a, our answer to the question, did she actually hear you know, from the voice of God? On Deep Dives and in the Patreons, you can also find our look into the Salem Witch Trials. Were there demons in Salem? What was with the witchcraft? What was going on there? And we also have another episode on the First Crusade. What kicked off Europe deciding to invade Jerusalem? And why did they do something like that? And we have just these deep thoughts that we're doing. We'll soon, very soon have one out on the London fire of 1666 and how that quite literally transformed the world And how yet most people don't even hardly know it exists. So those are other future and previous deep dives we have done. But now without any further, uh, you know, anything else to say, let's get you into deep dive part three in Ethiopia. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts.
2: Troy, I am excited to get to the end of our Ethiopia journey. We know how they were established. We know what their rise to power was. Now, what is this uh what is this pre-reformation thing that happens here? This is part 3 of our Church of Ethiopia deep dive. If you haven't listened to the first two parts, you got to listen to those. These all build on that episode. So go back and check those out. Yeah. But now
1: so no, it, sorry, go ahead.
2: No, no, you go. You, I, I don't mean
1: to interrupt you. <laughs> <laughs> so this style of deep dive has been a little different where I'm kind of telling the story, and Joel's yeah. job is to be the audience to tell us, you know, hey, where am I missing things and where am I not being clear? And he's hearing all of this for the first time, much like you are, and hopefully answering and asking questions like that you would hear and want to know. At the same time, we've been in this story now for two hours, and we're only just now getting up to what I originally set up was the question, that, I, that this whole deep dive was meant to answer, which was I was sitting at a diner and a friend of mine said, hey, did John Calvin and the Reformation guys, you know, the boys in the Reformation, did they steal the, the Reformation from the Church of Ethiopia? That's how they like to be known, the boys in the Reformation, <laughs> um, you know, and did they steal that Reformation from this church in Ethiopia. And I will tell you that by the end of this episode, I can confidently answer that question but it is slightly more complex than just a straightforward yes or no. And I do want to give you that kind of thing. And the best way to do that is to actually tell you that story and let you kind of see through it because it is actually this really amazing and interesting and, and quite frankly, tragic story of the church and what happened um, in Ethiopia. It's, it's very, it's very sad and I, I think we need to hear it. And I think it's good for us to learn about these this very sad moment in church history, even if um, you know, we're very far removed from it, hundreds of years. And yet I think we can learn a lot from this tragic tale. When we ended it last episode, when we kind of came to a close, Omde the Conqueror has taken Ethiopia, built an empire. She's big, she's back, and she's ready to go. She Uh, He's written this document saying that, you know, the kings are now officially a hereditary line of Solomon. We took a detour during the Zogwe dynasty, but we're back. The Solomon line is back. These are the kings that descend from David himself. And we have rebuilt, and the Zagwe dynasty built this Jerusalem-like city. We're rebuilding Jerusalem. We have Jewish people in the land. Don't forget they're there too. We're surrounded by Muslim enemies, yet we are going to be this new heaven on earth, basically. We're going to rule this land, but it's not going to be easy. And his son, uh, his if Amde's nickname is the Conqueror, his son's name ends up being the Sword of Terror. And this is the names of the t- type of tough men that run ethiopia and and they are very afraid of losing ethiopia muslims are rebelling all the time this is a very precarious place they're in and the, and the very thing they're afraid of is actually what ends up happening to them so they're right to be afraid of it it doesn't happen to them when they think it will but it does end up happening so that that fear that someday the muslims will gang up and defeat us that's exactly what does occur Even though it's Africa and it happened before the Protestant Reformation, there's a very central figure to the African almost Reformation that we're looking at. Uh, If the Protestant Reformation focuses on Martin Luther, right? He's that beginning guy. And yes, there were other people before him and during his time. But we look at Martin Luther and him nailing the 95 Theses and we see this very clear moment before and after where the Reformation has begun and things are changing There's a very, very, very similar man in the African version as well. He's born in the year 1380 and his name is Estefanos or he'll go by Abba Estefanos. Abba means father Estefanos, father Estefanos. And the thing is, I don't, I'm not trying to draw these parallels for you, but there's no denying these guys have a very, very similar story, uh, Estefanos was not born to a particularly well-off family. Unlike Europe's Martin Luther, he did not know his dad. His dad was a warrior of the village, um, but before he was even born, he he died in what seems like combat. And when he was born, they gave him the name Estefanos, which meant reminiscent of the lion. And with a name like that, you would have expected him to grow up to want to be a warrior like his dad. And that's what everyone in the village, everyone in his family, wanted him to be. But like Martin Luther... Estefanos didn't want to be a warrior of the village. He didn't want to, not that Luther's dad was pushing him to be Luther, to be a lawyer, and he wanted to go work for the church. And Estefanos' family was pushing him to be this warrior, but he wanted to go be a monk, and he wanted to go work at the churches too. Estefanos grew up with his mother at his uncle's house, and they always put this pressure, grow up to be a warrior, and eventually he kind of runs away from home to go And be a monk and get away from all of that. He he makes amends with his family, but he makes it clear I'm going for the church. I want to be that kind of person. I don't want to be a warrior. He gets to a school for monks. uh, And at the age of 18, after he's been there for a while, they care for him, they kind of raise him for a while, and he gets to be made a deacon of that church. But he was driven by this desire to know God. Uh, Much like Martin Luther, he just never felt saved. He just struggled with this idea that. He was. He would gotten it. He was like, I just feel like I'm missing something. He believed in God. He loved the church, but he just felt like there just was something there. So he decides to kind of go looking for answers. After a few years, he he goes searching for it. And if you're familiar with the stories of great men, we've gone over so many men like this on Revive Thoughts. Uh, you can see a similar story: John Wesley, Saint Augustine. There's so many people who struggle with this, and it's can impossible you, not. Go ahead. Can you
2: tell us what? The general, if you had to, like, you know, broadly generalize what the main religion in Ethiopia is at this moment, right? Because they're not, like, they're not really Roman Catholic. They're obviously not quite Protestant. Like, what is their belief structure that this, pro, you know, pre-Protestant style movement is being birthed from? What
1: What is the environment that this well that this a question. is in? So- and you'll kind of see it here in a minute when i detail what his life looks like a very similar system of of catholic-like faith has taken over ethiopia while i honestly all the the orthodox churches struggle with this a little bit of rituals and rites and stuff like that but while the church remember ethiopia when they set war for the first time on that city they got cut off for 70 years and during those 70 years no bishops, nobody could check on them. And when they came back, they found some weird stuff had taken over. A lot of ritualistic rites and rules and ideas. And this actually during Estefanos' lifetime, they start worshiping like statues of Mary. A lot of the same stuff that Martin Luther a 100 years later will say, hey, we don't need to do this. That's what Estephanos is up against. This like idea of worshiping idols, uh, this idea of just working to earn your salvation and a lack of assurance of faith. The environment of Ethiopia in the early 1400s is just so similar to what was going on in Martin Luther's Germany, where it's just, you know, the, they're not doing selling indulgences, but they're saying you have to basically earn it. The The priests are, they're also saying the priests are Levites. Uh, the king is is a God king, you know, from Jerusalem days and whatever they say goes, And you've got to do what they say, and you've got to worship the Ark of the Covenant statue we put in the middle of your church, and you got to worship the statue of Mary, and you've got to say this prayer, and you've got to do this ritual. But it's okay if you drink. You drink as much as you want, right? It's okay if you do these other things. It's fine. As long as you do the works, you're saved. And it's very much that works-based salvation. Again, very similar to what Martin Luther had. And Estefano's could never find that assurance of his faith. And so he looked for it. So he actually kind of goes off and goes to the main church of Ethiopia to be trained by the biggest monastery there is. And he follows all the rules in the church to so do this, do this, do this. They have all these man-made rules, prayers, fasts, you know, don't eat for 10 days, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And Estefano, Estefano does all of it. He's like their most diligent guy. And at the age of 30, they go, hey, we love you. Estefanos. I think you're great. We want to make you a priest. But even after being made a priest, Estefano still just doesn't feel any assurance in his faith he still thinks like i i'm missing something so he makes another pilgrimage uh or actually after that he made multiple pilgrimages he fasted he would push himself very hard Uh, he desperately wanted to know god he would go and get ordained like twice during this time uh he just kept doing all these different things to just find some Uh, assurance and just never came. And again, just so similar to Martin Luther. Augustine has this quote, Augustine also famously spent years searching for the truth. And he says, our heart is restless till it finds its rest in you. And Estefanos really feels like a guy who just could not find rest because he could not find Christ. As Estefanos is looking for something different, he hears about a man living pretty close to the monastery who is a hermit. This man had been exiled Uh, from Ethiopia's churches because he had preached a different doctrine than what was currently acceptable inside Ethiopia, at least this part of Ethiopia. He had been a famous and renowned priest in the main part of the churches of the East. He'd been very famous in Alexandria, but when he came to Ethiopia to preach uh, those same doctrines, Ethiopia pushed him out. He happened to have been exiled pretty close to where Estefanos is. So Estefanos makes a trip to go see him and says, maybe this guy has some answers. Maybe he can kind of help me figure out why I don't feel... Uh, like I have a faith. Up until this point, uh, it's important to note that much like Luther, uh, you know, Stephanus is very well educated. Been ordained twice by the Orthodox Church. He wasn't uh, stupid. At the same time, though, he 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 just wasn't properly educated in the faith. Um, when he arrives to this guy, this guy just teaches him the basic biblical doctrines of salvation. You know, Jesus Christ paid the price for sin yeah but what works do we have to do no like jesus christ paid that price of sin the bible is where we learn this this the simple stuff that we think of as making you a christian that you know jesus is the son of, you know son of god he's also god he prayed the price of sin and died on the cross he took all the work all that kind of stuff but that wasn't what was currently being taught in ethiopia they had all this extra stuff added on and when he heard this guy teaching it he said he just felt convicted And suddenly, all at once, like he was suddenly could just see differently. Like like his eyes were just like, oh my gosh, I understand it now. I understand the faith for the first time. And boom, he said he felt free. And he immediately began to tell others about this new teaching he had learned from the hermit. And the monk started saying, you're just a different guy. He no longer spent all his time doing these worship rituals. He was no longer doing the insane fasting. Uh, He no longer drank alcohol. He suddenly spent all his free time reading the Bible, meditating on the words, and telling people about what he was learning. He just seemed like a different man. He would then write the scriptures down on pieces of paper and sell them for money. And so when they gave him money, he could then use that to write more and sell them again. It was about a penny to get a scripture. And so they were kind of working back and forth just enough to get the scriptures out to more people. And others began listening to his teaching and they loved what he was saying. They loved the scriptures. They were having their lives changed as well by just the simple preaching. Again, they had the scripture, they had the Bible, but no one was reading it. No one was understanding it because they just had lost that idea of justified by faith alone. His teaching in Christianity just seemed different. People were saying it's a breath of fresh air, like we just feel so much better under the load that Estefanos is taking from us. People's lives are being changed, and as as far as you could tell by any account, the Holy Spirit is moving. But this did not go unnoticed. People started pushing back. Attempts were made to call him a heretic. uh, Sorry, heretic. People were cutting off his followers. Uh, One of his closest disciples got sent into exile. Estefanos was then put into jail for three years because they said, you're teaching against the Orthodox, you know, ordained official Ethiopian church. One of the complaints they put him in jail for was he didn't respect tradition enough. And another one said, Hey, he doesn't like our mystical visions, which was something the priests would do. They'd have these visions and tell you what to do. And Estefanos was like, that's, that's not how it works. We don't have to do that anymore. Uh, They complained to the overseers that Estefanos was teaching the young people how to disrespect the church and that Estefanos was even calling the priests magicians by all their illusions they were trying to do. I don't know if that part's true or if that's just something they added on. Uh, but either way, Estefanos goes away to jail for three years. He wasn't phased by it, though. He just continued to grow in his own walk with God. And when he came out, his disciples he had left behind had formed an even bigger community. There was even more people following him now. They started calling themselves the Stephanites, naming themselves after Estefanos. And they divided up Ethiopia into different zones. And they said, hey, we're going to send teams of disciples to each zone. When we get there, we're going to work the farms. We're going to make money. We're going to take care of the community. And we're going to make sure we can feed people. And while we're feeding them, we'll share the scriptures and we'll share the gospel and tell them about the work of Jesus Christ. And when we're not working and we're not farming, we'll get together and we'll read scriptures together to encourage one another. And just stopping right there, what a beautiful plan, right? That just, they came out of prison. They had plans. They were, they had all these ideas and they're, they're just so, um it's just so basic we're going to read scriptures we're going to take care of people we're going to feed them and we're going to tell them about god it's just such a kind of beautiful thing and yeah i don't ever i don't i try to think of how many other people have seen so systematic and so careful with such a plan the only like person i could think of was like this kind of planning behind his missions work was like hudson taylor i mean this is a really carefully well thought out idea they had now when Stephanos was a small community of like-minded people he was somebody you could ignore but as he's forming multiple communities across different zones of Ethiopia, now he's suddenly, you know, causing a problem. He's suddenly causing divisions within the church at large. He, grew, he had at least three large agrarian farming communities. They were all self-sufficient. And they were forming, uh, they were spreading the towns all over, and people were loving what they were hearing. And they were becoming very popular because they just never heard preaching and teaching like this, just the simple gospel truths. Teaching that took away authority from the priest to cast off sin, but gave it back to God and his relationship with his people. This put such an emphasis on God's word and took away the emphasis at the time of Ethiopia on works. And they took other bold stances as well. They looked at the Bible and they said, hey, Ethiopia, I don't think you have the Ark of the Covenant. You were not allowed to say that. Ethiopia has claimed their entire lifetime that they have the Ark of the Covenant. If you remember when Judah in episode two wiped out the Acts of Empire, it was because of the Ark of the Covenant, right? But Estefanos said, no, we don't have it. There's no evidence we have it. And the fact that we have to make a model of the Ark of the Covenant in our churches is ridiculous. And that we have to cover it in gold. It's this, you know, big idol, he said. And I'm not going to put it in my churches. And when they would put together churches, they refused to do that. But that was against the rules. Ethiopia said you had to do that. But Estefanos went further and said, hey, we're, our, our priests, our leaders are not descendants of Israel. They're not Levites. And we don't have to listen to them like they're Levites. He also said, and the kings aren't descendants of Solomon. <laughs> like this is not who these people are. They've made this stuff up and we don't have to listen to them. And that was going too far. He was now stepping on the toes of the whole church, the whole kingdom itself. He said that that document that Amde made back in the day, Kebra and Nagas, that thing that says that these guys are kings and they are under David's line, it's just wrong. And finally, he said, we need to stop worshiping saints You know, at that time they would bow to the Virgin Mary they'd bow to these saints. And Estefano's was like, that's not in the Bible. That's not something we're supposed to do. And this is bold stuff. The Ethiopian church is a lot like the Catholic church. This is just what you do. And the idea of stepping on that, the idea that you'd question that the Ethiopian church and kings aren't in divine origin, that this isn't a new Jerusalem, you're just not allowed to do that. And so the king at the time then steps in and has to kind of deal with Estefano's. Now, the king is a really interesting guy himself. He was not actually originally raised to be an emperor. He's the emperor of Ethiopia, but he wasn't supposed to be. Uh, The person who was supposed to be the emperor got assassinated. And so he got pulled into the job. And shortly after the other guy had only been the king for a little while, gets assassinated, and Zara, this guy, is put in charge. Now, Zara had been raised to be the head of the church. He had been raised by monks. He had spent his entire life learning theology. He was trained in theology and he was really good at it. At the same time, he's this paranoid emperor who saw his last guy lose the job really quickly to assassination. He's big on theology. um, And suddenly there's this new guy in his kingdom telling him that you're not any of those things that you say you are, you're not a divine king. This isn't a divine new Jerusalem. All those things are made up. And you can understand why he reacted to that uh, not happily. And Zara himself, kind of an interesting, i mean, just an interesting guy. but He's the one who kind of ended some of the religious controversies. When he first came in, there was this big divide. Should you have Sunday as your rest day? Or should you have Saturday and Sunday as your rest day? And that doesn't sound like a big deal to us, but it literally nearly broke the Ethiopian church because it sprang up during those 70 years. Nobody was watching them. And it was Zara who came in, made the compromise, got the divisions, got the people back together and said, we can do this and kind of saved that unraveling that was occurring under the Ethiopian church. He's a hero to the Ethiopian church. He had saved the day. And not shortly after he does that, this Estefanos guy shows up. And Zara also loves theology. He'll end up writing three different books. One of them is a defense of the Trinity, and one of them is the defense of the Nativity, and saying, like, these are real things that happen. We need to respect them. And so Zara, on the one hand, he's this bad guy, and he really is a bad guy. And on the other hand, he loves theology, and he loves the church, and he loves religion, and he's a little bit uh, complicated, as you will see. Zara slowly kind of falls apart, too, in the story. You'll see that in a minute, too. But we get back to Estefanos, Estefanos gets dragged kind of into the courts and the king is kind of like, hey, um, you know, to learn if you're worth anything and if I should take you seriously, you're supposed to, as a monk, give me legal advice. And this is kind of how we play ball here. You know, he's basically us into the court because I hear you're running a new thing, but I'm inviting you to the court to kind of play the political game. And one of the ways you do that is you give me advice on legal matters and I will give you more favor and maybe I let this whole thing that you're teaching go. That doesn't sound so bad. Uh, but, but Estefano says, no, thank you. That's not what I'm supposed to do. He says, the king does one thing and we uh, religious leaders do something else. You have your sphere of influence and I have mine. And I don't think it's my job to tell you what to do. Uh, and likewise, I don't think it's your job to tell me what to do. Well, the emperor hated that. And he goes, so you're not going to play ball, basically, right? He's like, no. On top of that, all the emperors expected you to bow to them when you came to them. That was just, you know, you bowed and paid homage to the divine king. uh, And none of the followers of Estefanos would ever do it. And so he finally just gets frustrated with Estefanos and just starts putting the people in prison. He starts beating them. And he just says, you guys are disrespectful. You don't do things the way you're supposed to do them. And we we have no time for people like this in this kingdom. Estefanos and them said, hey, the only person that we should bow to, the only person worthy of that kind of worship is Jesus Christ. We're not going to do it. Estefanos put out books on the triune God, taught his disciples to read the Bible for themselves, taught salvation and grace by faith alone, and that was all that we needed He went against not just the false practices of the church at the time, but he was also heavily going after the witchcraft of their day, of the pagans of their time. Uh, There was tons of that stuff kind of being tolerated, and they said, no more. We need to get rid of the the witches and the pagans. It's causing us trouble. Estefanos would get dragged off to jail on multiple occasions, Um, but every time he got out, he went right back to training his people and writing books and trying to get stuff done. He was also, they would secretly send people to the churches in the East to get them ordained, Uh, so that they could have their own system, but they couldn't tell them they were a part of the Estefanos clan. So they just kind of show up and be like, I'm from Ethiopia to be ordained. Like, who are you? I'm like, I'm I'm just from Ethiopia. Don't ask too many questions. Ordain me. Okay, cool. I can go back. And now I can go work in the Estefanos church instead of in the real Ethiopian church, you know, quote, quote, real. The the king and the the church of Ethiopia are really frustrated at this point. Um, Estefanos' movement keeps growing bigger. They're going over and ordaining people and they're just, in their minds, they're just disrespecting them. Uh, all throughout. And that word disrespect, I read several academic summaries. They even have like his court documents a little bit and you can read it. And that's the word they kept putting down is just disrespect, disrespect, disrespect. I don't know if that's just what they were saying about him or if that's actually what Estefanos was. He might have actually been disrespectful, right? Either way, whatever was expected, Estefanos wasn't doing it. And I kind of wonder if maybe this is part of the reason why Estefanos' movement failed. If you look at Martin Luther, Martin Luther worked with the princes, worked with the people, and even though, to some degree, the movement that they started caused eventually, you know, complete change of the way European society ruled itself, Martin Luther and those guys were trying to work with their political leaders. Estefanos really isn't trying to work with the king. But on the other side of it, Martin Luther's kings and princes aren't calling themselves divine and Estefanos' is. And so we could see why he wouldn't want to work with them. But on the other other side of it, you could see why the king doesn't have any tolerance for division. He's got enemies all around, enemies inside. He just dealt with one giant church conflict, and now now he has this new one, and the guy who's in charge won't even try to play ball. It doesn't seem like he really wants to try. The situation is very tense. And I do wonder if some of Estefanos' maybe personality, maybe the very passion that got him to see God's word clearly and the desire to see other people say it might have also made him, maybe he was actually a little disrespectful in court. Maybe he didn't play a little bit more of the court game that maybe he should have. I, I don't want to say it's his fault. I'm just saying, like, it's worth at least mentioning that it came up over and over and over again that one word, disrespect. Now he was originally ordered to be killed by the king. In fact, on multiple times they were like, just kill him. He's too disrespectful. He's wasting our time.
2: How, how much time has passed here? So, you it's know, his, 20, his movement
1: here? Yeah, yeah. Twenty to thirty years over the course oh, wow. of his time. So he's there, been yeah. he's been going yeah okay he's been going and that's the thing he gets taken to jail multiple times he gets told to be murdered like this again the advisors are just like king kill him just kill him already and he gets ordered to be killed multiple times and then like at the last second the king will change his mind and just beat him and send him on his way and and this happens over and over again throughout um lifetime since he became a real follower and and again i don't want to say that estefanus was disrespectful but that was at least what him and his followers were accused of Finally, Estefanos is brought to court again. And this time it's because specifically because Estefanos won't worship and bow to Mary. This movement really hit Ethiopia in the 1400s. Ethiopia is kind of starting to branch actually out to the Catholic Church. That Zara guy is actually reaching out to the Catholic Church. In fact, in a little while, we'll talk about the fact that the Catholic Church almost reintegrated Ethiopia back in to its like giant fold during this time. And one thing the Catholic Church pushed back was like, hey, you got you to worship Mary, guys. Well, Estefanos and them go, no, we don't worship Mary, just like we don't worship all you know, our covenant. We don't do these things. Mary is not God. And that was just kind of the last straw. They were just like, you, you're, you're disrespecting the mother of God. You can at least bow to her. And they're like, "He's no, I'm not going to do that. His final words on this statement in court was, I worship God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I will not bow before anything other than this. I will not add to this, not for the sake of the rulers of this world. And they were kind of like, we're done. We got it. We're just, we can't do it. You guys are, there's just no getting anywhere with you guys. We're done with you. And they tortured the disciples, attempting to get them to revert back to the Christianity of Ethiopia. They're like, we're going to bring you back into the church by torturing you. Or you can convert to something else, by the way, but you just can't stay in Estefanos' camp. They would beat them. They would starve them. They imprisoned them. Uh, I mean, they were and they were pretty brutal about it. They would use knives to cut their hands, just cutting pieces of skin off, trying to inflict so much pain that they would give up. But almost none of the Stephanites ever wavered, and that was one of the frustrating things for the king. Is like these guys don't back down; they just stay where they are. In a final act of determination, the king had guards chain the Stephanites and walk them way out into the desert in an exile march in Africa. You can imagine how unpleasant that is. Uh, But he kept Estefanos guarded in a hut very close by, away from his devoted followers. According to the story, Estefanos was completely alone, surrounded only by hostile guards. His conditions were terrible. He was underfed, underwatered, completely lacking sleep. He was also nearly 70 years old at this point. About seven months later, he finally dies. The guards hear him yell out Jesus' name three times, so loud it shocked them. Then according to the story, An earthquake shook the land. The guards ran away, afraid that Jesus was coming or something. When they go back to the hut, they see Estefanos has died. And they don't touch his body because they believed he couldn't. And so they got an Estefanos convert that was in the area to come check on him. And Estefanos had died. uh, But the chains on his feet and hand had been broken. Now, I do feel like some of that might be would be mythological could have been added on you know <laughs> it does feel like it might have been this great story cool movie scene um i don't want to doubt that the lord could have done that for Estefanos, but i i do kind of wonder if that's not exactly what happened at the same time uh he does die in this hut though away from his followers after at nearly the age of 70 he's had a pretty hard life and the emperor was not interested in Estefanos' body uh becoming a relic or something like that so to add final insult the injury to the Stephanites, um, he forced them to wait seven days in hot Africa before they could bury the body, which is very gross. Uh, you can imagine as a guard, how bad that smelled. They were having to guard the body. So none of the Stephanites would try to bury it. After seven, after seven days, the Stephanites in the area were then allowed to bury what was left of the body. His followers that were exiled actually heard about this. They came back, they exhumed the body and they're like, we're gonna go put it in a proper burial place. Uh, but they did not ask permission. So as they carried this body that they re-up, uh, re-took up, out of the ground, they were caught by guards. They were then imprisoned and beaten again. After several months, they were let out, and then they took the body, or, or I guess whatever's left of it, and they were told to bury it outside of Ethiopia altogether. The emperor then rounded up what was left of the Stephanites and asked them to bow to him. But he found that they still did not bow to him. It wasn't just because they were listening to Estefano's. This made him even angrier because he's like, I killed Estefanos, and you guys still don't do it. So after the usual beating, imprisonment, and all that stuff, um, he just he re-exiles all of them, kicks them all out of the country. He's just not in the mood to deal with them anymore. Uh, many of the Stephanites were brutally martyred during this time, kind of a wave of violence hits. But after a time, it calms down, and some of the earlier followers of Estefanos write his story down. And this is written in what's called, it's the only surviving work from this time that we, tells us Estefanos' the side of things. It's called the Gee's Acts of Eva Estefanos of Gwenda Gwende, which I probably messed that up, but Nailed I think it. I did okay. <laughs> uh, I wish we knew more about it, but this is really, truly the only book that survived. There were many books. They were a very educated group. They really believed in writing, but this is the only one that we still have. Uh, so many of the martyrs, so much of the attack and persecution, there was so much just going on for the next hundred years that nobody was able to do it. Even the man who wrote that Acts of Abba Estefanos was then immediately put in three years imprisonment and then martyred for just writing that down. So it wasn't good. There may have been other surviving works, but there's also language barriers, translations, and just the fact that the Church of Ethiopia doesn't really want to talk about the story because they don't. They still to this day don't acknowledge Estefanos um, and see him as a heretic. His movement does not last, sadly. Uh, Sources kind of say they didn't go completely away all at once. There was a second generation. You know, they had kids. And the new Stephanites never considered themselves like different. They only saw themselves as a part of the Church of Ethiopia, just a different part of it. Uh, They would try to take communion with them. They would get their bishops ordained in Egypt, still sending them in disguise. Um, there is even speculation that the second generation of Stephanites kind of blended into the Ethiopian church so they could go to church in Ethiopia, but they were still considering themselves Stephanites. Sadly, that's kind of what ends up being the undoing of this group. There's a man named Ezra. He was this kind of great leader and they, there was a time period where there were no ordained priests for Stephanites or anybody really. And Ezra goes to Alexandria. He goes and gets ordained. He comes back to the Holy Land. Uh, but he didn't just come back with the ordination so he could make more priests. He also came back with the knowledge of how to build a watermill, which no one had ever done before in Ethiopia. This, you know, a watermill, you can you can move wheat and do all these crazy things with it. And so in the small Stephanite community, kind of living out in the middle of nowhere, he builds a water mill and it's like famous. Everyone in town's like, whoa, check it out. And so people from all over go, this is amazing. We need to build these. This can help us so much with our farming. And so the king hires him, brings him to his court. Uh, in the year 1499, it says, show us how to build the watermill. And Ezra stays. He teaches the court how to build watermills. He does these things. And Ezra's goal, he's kind of the leader of the Stephanites. He goes, hey, you know, we, we Stephanites aren't so bad. We're good people. You know, you should really give us a second chance. Come on. You guys can give us a, another chance. We taught you the watermill. And we can really bring you a lot of good things to the culture. But sadly, Ezra's story kind of falls apart. Because they're still getting persecuted, and yet they're trying to show their persecutors they're good people, and they should go easy on them. And so then Ezra kind of starts to change what the people believe in. And so the, the Ethiopian church pushes them and goes, hey, Ezra, you know, how can we ever give you guys a second chance when you guys won't even bow to the king? And, you know, that was a tenet of Estefanos. We don't bow to the king because he's not Jesus. But Ezra goes, oh, no, we'll bow to the king. Like, we Stephanize, we can bow to the king. It's okay, we'll bow. And they bow to the king. And he goes, well, you guys won't bow to Mary. Oh, no, no, we're not. Like, we will. We will. And so they start bowing to Mary, too. And one by one, like, they just keep getting persecuted. They just keep getting pressured. Like, well, why won't you do this? Why won't you do that? Why won't you do this? And Every time they do, the Stephanites under Ezra go, no, well, we'll do that, too. We'll do that, too, right? We'll do whatever you want. You know, go easy on us. And for a time, it does work. They do go easy on them. Okay, we'll do all the things we tell you. you're not so bad. But after Ezra dies, the persecution whips back up again. And because at this point, the Stephanites don't really see themselves as any different than the Ethiopian church. They've already bowed. They've already caved on all the major issues. When this last round of persecution is comes in, like right in the early 1500s, it just completely wipes them out. What little is left just kind of gets absorbed into the church um, when a Muslims kind of start attacking again. And so the Stephanites just... Fade out. They gave up on everything they believed and then they just kind of fade back into the Ethiopian church. It's really easy to see huge parallels between what happened in the Protestant Reformation and what Estefanos was doing. They both saw a broken version of Christianity based on works, based on priests. It denied Christ. They couldn't even find Christ in it and they tried to reform it. They both you know, Estefanos never used the phrase solace a cryptora, but it was very clear he believed scripture was alone the source of it. And he actually did say by faith alone and by grace alone at different times. It didn't become, you know, we didn't say that wasn't chance of theirs, but that was stuff he did believe in and he actually said specifically. His followers fought for what really sounds like an evangelical version of the faith, and they stood up to immense persecution. But on the other hand, we don't want to read what happened in Europe into Ethiopia. It's, not, it's very difficult not to see a beautiful but tragic parallel, but Ethiopia could have been what happened to the Protestant Reformation, that things had just gone a little bit different. It's almost kind of like an alternative history version. It's, not, it's hard for me not to dream and wish that Ethiopian church had not been you know, the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation and had things played out a little bit differently. It really could have been. It could have been that what started in Ethiopia spread to Europe, um, but that isn't what happened. Because the Ethiopian church was completely surrounded by Muslim enemy nations that did not, and a Jewish kingdom inside of it that didn't care, and pagan nations too, that didn't care whether you were a follower of Estefanos or a follower of the king or of Ethiopia. To them, you're all the same. You're Christians, and we don't want you in our lands. And so when the Stephanites would get pushed out, when they were on the run, when they were exiled, there was nowhere they could go. That's why they got jailed so easily so many times. That's why they got killed so easily. In the Protestant Reformation, you could find friendly lords and lands scattered off, right? When things got bad in France, Calvin goes to Geneva. When Knox got, things got bad in Scotland, he goes to Geneva. And then when things get better, he goes back to Scotland. You know, there were geographical places you could get away and find some safety in. And eventually, you know, the Puritans, they go to North America. they you're not stuck. But for Estefanos and the Stephanites, where do you go? you're in Ethiopia, you can kind of go to Alexandria a little bit, but they're not really on your side either. All the same things that you're complaining about Ethiopia are kind of in Alexandria too. And so everyone around you was just as happy to kill you as anyone else, right? And you're going to go to Europe, Europe is kind of doing the same thing at this point. The Protestants to a degree can kind of work with the civil authorities, because the civil authorities didn't consider themselves divine kings building a new Jerusalem. But the things were so corrupt in, in Ethiopia, it was so part of who they were because they needed unity so badly to survive that it was very difficult for you to do that. Luther would have uh, sided with the princes against the peasants during the peasant revolt. This had a profound impact on things, how to properly govern nations. They wrestled with that a lot. And, you know, and sometimes they made mistakes. I'm not sure how much they should have, you know, worked with King Henry, the Protestants, uh, to build the Church of England. And yet they did work with him. But as far as in this movement, they couldn't work with the, Ethiopia, the Emperor of Ethiopia in the same way because he had like a divine God complex where he was set on the throne to be, you know, King David's great, 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 whatever. And so they were kind of out of luck. There wasn't really much you could do. And there wasn't really a whole lot you could work with there because they were stepping on the gospel itself. There were other things too that probably caused this, but these were the big things that stood out to me that made the Ethiopian movement just not have the same success rate and not even have the same probability of success that the Protestant one did. And remember Martin Luther and them when they first started, they didn't know they were going to be successful. John Huss at almost the same time as Estephanos, is trying to do some of these same things, but his movement does not get off the ground and they do get pretty much wiped out. The Hussites are persecuted for a long time and they're just not successful. In fact, Hus and the are actually contemporaries and they both die kind of the same way. Uh, And so in a lot of ways, maybe those two are a better parallel, but Hus, you know, not quite the same as the other. So we won't go all the way there with that parallel. But before we completely write off the Ethiopian empire, it is important to note that what they were afraid of was exactly what undid them. You know, the very thing that caused the Reformation to fail is also the very thing that kept them for another hundred years from falling to Muslim empires. They were so terrified of division. The same Muslims that sought to destroy Ethiopia were awaiting. They would attack them on a regular basis. They would raid into their country all the time. They would start wars. They would start rebellions constantly. The emperor demanded perfect loyalty because the Ethiopian empire was dominated by many lords and many of them didn't want them to be Christian politics were always dicey. Don't forget that the emperor himself, his predecessor had been assassinated. You know, this same excuse, by the way, was used in Europe, you know, the Lutherans and Protestants during their division. uh, One of the things the Catholic church says, well, you're gonna let the Turkish Muslims take over. They're already at the gates of Vienna and you're gonna divide the church right now. But what if the Muslims weren't at the gates of Vienna? What if they literally completely surrounded your land? And the only thing standing between you and them is your emperor and his army and he needs loyalty, and now you suddenly have everyone going, wait a minute, do I have to be loyal to you? Are you even the king you say you are? That's gonna cause problems. What the Stephanites wanted was more than just an offense against his pride. It was a threat to the entire delicate Ethiopian system in Africa by itself. This is exactly what happened. The Muslim invasions and attacks would eventually weaken it to the point that it was almost completely destroyed by them. And and they were they're crafty. A great example of the way the Muslims would attack Ethiopia, there was a Muslim neighbor, and every year he would wait till Lent. And when Lent happened, he would then bring his army over and attack the Ethiopians. And the reason was, is because they had to fast for Lent. But when your army is fasting, it's not very strong. And this Muslim neighbor knew, like clockwork, every year at the same time, they would fast And he manages to wipe out multiple Ethiopian armies. He kills two emperors by doing this because they're just, they're weak, they're unprepared, they're fasting, they're praying, and they aren't ready for this attack. It would be as if, you know, George Washington, you know, attacks the British on Christmas. They weren't seeing it coming because this is their holy holiday. This went on for years and years. Again, kills two different emperors. This one Muslim neighbor just doing this one attack, taking tons of stuff. Finally, one emperor goes, I'm done. I'm not, I don't care if it's Lent. He waits for this guy to show up with his army, expecting an easy attack again. And none of his soldiers this time have fasted. All of them are prepared. The thing is, if you attack every year on Lent, the other side of it is they know you're going to attack them on Lent. So they're going to get their swords. They're ready for you. And this Ethiopian emperor kills them and, you know, defeats them. This doesn't happen again. But this is just the kind of stuff that they had to get used to all the time. They were always under these kind of attacks by people who didn't really have any problem with coming after them. The official church of Ethiopia still considers Estefanos and them heretics, but he is have a powerful and important role to play to the Christians at the time. When later Christians and evangelicals started evangelizing in Ethiopia, they told people the stories of Estefanos and the Stephanites. And they connected them back with what happened. And this helped make people comfortable with coming to Christ. They didn't see it as something you know, brand new, but they were like, Oh, okay. So like there's some history of this in Ethiopia and it made it more comfortable for a lot of people to feel, okay, I can switch out of the Ethiopian Orthodox church and move into, uh, the evangelical faith because it's not brand new. We once had it ourselves. So what happens kind of after this, right? We've, we've seen Estefano's fall, you know, we've seen this kind of Protestant reformation go down. Uh, where do we kind of go from here in Ethiopia? Uh, I told you already that the Ethiopian emperor was um, really confused. He both loved theology and he also was a very paranoid man. He dealt with multiple rebellions. He dealt with multiple assassination attempts and he himself wasn't the most social or normal guy. He basically been raised in a Royal prison surrounded by monks. No one thought he'd ever be emperor. He ended up getting betrayed by close advisors several times and he kind of goes a little bit crazy. So eventually, um, you just kind of you know, again in that environment where everyone's trying to kill you, he kind of sees that Stefanos is just one more person trying to kill him. Um, at the same time, though, he starts to unleash these things against his own family members after dealing with so many assassination attempts. He just becomes convinced everyone wants to kill him. Eventually, he is convinced his wife and children are out to kill him. He ends up beating his wife uh, to death, he ends up like t- treating his children mercilessly. Um, his wife will end up dying when a priest says, hey, you can't kill uh, your wife. What are you doing? He has that one killed too. Uh, so you, when you look at it, this guy was had kind of lost his mind a little bit. On the flip side, though, he actually grew the kingdom quite a bit and it had never been as far south and had been as strong economically as it was during his reign. Um, he just did all these different things that were not great, but he was a part of the team that basically led an attack on egypt and got them to not take portuguese and italians sailors prisoners anymore because he said we christians have to stick together and that made the catholic christians go hey ethiopia do you want to come back in and this began a process of inviting ethiopia to things in fact, ethiopia goes to a couple church councils in the 1400s in fact one of those church councils um was the one where john huss was burned so they were kind of there for that but they were also there for this really big conference in 1441 where the Catholic church was trying to bring the Coptic and Ethiopian church back into the Catholic church. Uh, there was a bunch of talks, a bunch of good ideas. People were really on board, but nothing kind of ever came of it. And then 12 years later, the Constantinople falls, the Ottoman Turks take over everything. And the Catholics really are too busy dealing with Hussites and their own problems. No fruit ever comes of it. But for a minute, everyone was really excited and thought the Ethiopian church and the Coptic church was gonna kind of come back on board with the Catholic church in the West. Uh, European churches, the Europeans were loving it though. They loved that there was a Christian nation in Africa. When they found out about it, they thought it was the coolest thing. And in general, they were just like, yes, you know, the church of God moving on. So, on the other side of it, and again, on one hand, the Zara guy, terrible to Estefanos, uh, terrible to his family, and super paranoid. On the other hand, he liked writing theology books. He wrote a book about the Nativity, wrote a book about the uh, Trinity and almost brought the church of ethiopia back into contact with the catholic church just kind of a strange complicated man um glad i didn't have to live under him but he was more he was more than just a one-dimensional character in this story ethiopia then really builds a strong relationship with italy and spain they're actually documented um you know we have evidence that there were communities of ethiopians now living in rome by the end of the 1400s kind of again integrating back into the world like they're no longer they're they're deisolating they're kind of connecting with uh Europe now the catholic church and them still don't see eye to eye on this modified physy i mean thing but nobody's um calling them non-christians however once the catholic church and the reformation gets going the catholic church starts sending jesuits everywhere and one of the places they send uh jesuits to is ethiopia and this actually causes problems but not just because the Catholics have arrived. In the 1500s, that threat of the Muslim nation finally coalesces. The Ottoman Turks have been expanding for a while. They've been expanding all over, and they've always been kind of looking at Ethiopia as a problem. Ethiopia is in the way to South Africa. Ethiopia is this big Christian kingdom. It's not unpowerful, but the Ottoman Empire at this point is far more powerful. And so what they kind of would do is they'd send fuel you know, like not actual full, but money. They'd send funds, they'd arm the Muslims and they'd send them to go fight Ethiopia through different sultans. And whenever one Sultan lost, the Ottoman Empire would just kind of switch over to another Sultan, always trying to get different Muslim neighbors to take out Ethiopia for them. And this strategy was really successful. Three-quarters of Ethiopia ended up losing her land. She became deeply weak. And even though Christianity had been kind of spreading out to other kingdoms during this time, Ethiopia was just completely open to a wide Uh, a direct invasion, and that's what they did. The Muslims come in, they started burning monasteries, killing monks, pretty much getting rid of all the Christianity. And for about 15 years, they were wrecking havoc. But just as the other sultans had gone to the Ottoman Empire to take care of Ethiopia, the Ethiopians were connecting with the Christians, and so they reached out for outside help too, and they said, look, we're going to lose the only Christian kingdom in Africa if you don't save us. And the Portuguese came in, brought in more soldiers, brought in more guns, and were able to push the Ottoman Turk, kind of led armies back you know this is kind of like uh this is like modern politics almost you know where two big countries don't fight directly but they fight with these littler countries that's kind of what's happening here and the portuguese are able to kind of get the ottoman turks back and they give ethiopia back their land but the i mean these people are exhausted they've been fighting for years they lost everything and now the portuguese said you know because we saved you here are some jesuits we'd like you guys to be catholic now basically and what are you going to say no we just saved you They send one Jesuit named Paez, and Paez is incredibly successful. He had been sent uh, actually originally to Yemen. He was then uh, sold into slavery for seven years. Him and his partner, another Jesuit, uh, they kept preparing themselves to go to Ethiopia. After seven years, some other Jesuits in the area found them, bought them out of slavery. His friend died, but Paez survived, and Paez gets to Ethiopia. And he had a profound impact. People were like, he's quiet, he's gentle, he's respectful. The problem is he converts the emperor to Catholicism, but when that happens, everyone else goes, no, we're not Catholic, and a giant civil war ensues. Now, Paz actually hides away during the civil war. He didn't want this to happen, and when the dust settles, the Ethiopian church wins, and the Catholic you know emperor is kicked out uh, and dies. So then he actually comes out of the hiding. Paz meets the new emperor, and he actually convinces him to be a Catholic too, and that causes almost the whole thing to happen all over again. Um, But the Jesuits do manage to get some monasteries. They get a Catholic presence going for a while. Um, And yet the new guys who came in, the new Jesuits were really rigid. They were really strict. They weren't really kind. And the Ethiopians didn't like them. And so eventually the Ethiopians just kick all the Catholics out because they're kind of tired of dealing with Catholic emperors and all this stuff. This is kind of the nicer version of what happened. The less charitable version is the Catholics forced everyone to bow to them and would kill anyone that didn't agree with them. And this caused a bunch of problems. And eventually uh, they were thrown out as seen as just as much of a problem as the Turks were. This just depends. One version is that they were nice, but they were causing problems. The other version is they were strict and they got thrown out of Ethiopia. But either way, they get thrown out of Ethiopia. But this makes them weak to the Turks because now the Catholic countries won't help them. And once again, Ethiopia is kind of on her own. Now in the 1600s and 1700s, they start having these different philosophers. One of the most famous is Zerah Yaqab. That's the exact same name as the emperor from earlier, but it's not the same guy. He lived you know, 200 years later. And he actually creates his own version of the cosmological argument uh, saying, hey, everyone has a cause. Everyone was created at some point. So, who was the original cause? Who was the original parent? That must have been God. John Locke uses the same argument, but 50 or 60 years later. So, these philosophers were really intelligent. They had the idea that all men were created equal and they read it down almost word for word, the same way the European ones would later, but it was just their own ideas they came up with on their own. So, they were very, the 1600s and 1700s weren't that bad for Ethiopia. But then they get this new enemy, and this new enemy is probably one of the craziest group of people I have ever read about in all of my time, Joel. I got to say, this guy, this group of people, and the way they decide to take out Ethiopia is just so mind-numbing because of the amount of work it would have taken to do it. And yet they almost are successful in completely wiping Ethiopia out. So there's this group of people, they're shepherding people, and they get this vision, their leader gets this vision from their shepherding, And he gets a dream and the dream tells him, you must destroy Ethiopia or Ethiopia will destroy everybody. And so the leader goes, you know, these people are called the Oromo people. And so he tells all of his people, all the shepherds, everybody, we're going to Ethiopia and we're going to destroy it. And they go, how are we going to destroy it? And they say, we're just shepherds. We're not strong. We can't do anything militarily. We don't have a lot of economic power. But what we're going to do is we're going to go in and we're just going to adopt their children any children they don't want, we'll adopt them and we'll raise them to be like us. And we're going to teach their kids and we're going to turn their culture into a Muslim culture through the inside out, through us. All of us basically are missionaries, the Aromo people, and we're every single one of us are going to go into their culture and turn it inside out from the inside, make it Oromo. And we will take care of every person that the Ethiopians won't until there's no Ethiopians left. And we're the only ones, which is crazy. That is the most subversive method I've ever heard of trying to destroy your enemy. But that was their prophecy, and that's what they decided to do. And in a way, it's kind of like Christian mission work. You know, you go take care of the lost and the hurting and tell them about the gospel. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, our goal is not to, you know, destroy the nation from the inside out because of a dream from a shepherd, but that's what these people do. And for 200 years, they just constantly migrate into the lands they take over. They don't actually kill anybody, but they're taking over the lands. They're taking care. They do exactly what they set out to do. And it gets so bad that Ethiopia has to like put official constraints around this group of people because they really are taking over. To this day, there's a large part of Ethiopia called the Oromo where they still reside. They took over so much land that's now theirs, basically. And that's, I mean... Again, just another weird threat that Ethiopia is dealing with where this unique cultural threat to destroy the kingdom comes in from a group of people who are literally devoted their life's work to destroying Christian Ethiopia and replacing it, but not through war, but through just training children and taking over the land. And this isn't even the only one. Don't forget the Jewish kingdom actually comes back to life at this point, too, and also tries to divide. It's just... <laughs> During some it's of these lot. times... I'll, it's a lot. Ethiopia is not having a good time. And at the end of this time, they kind of reach back out to Europe. King Louis Fourteenth, you know, he's not really well known. Uh, oh, he's well known, but he's not a good guy in European history. But he actually gets along well with uh, the people in Africa. They like him. They're kind of friends for a while. Finally, in the 1800s, this man named Talwadaros, he becomes the emperor, and he has this really weird story. But he tries to reestablish Ethiopia, kind of get things back on track. He builds libraries. He reforms the churches a bit. He's a very humble guy. The British diplomats love him. They say, man, this guy is the most humble dude. He loves his people. And and they said the slogan that that he always says, without Christ, I am nothing. That was just this guy's slogan. Everyone loved him. Ethiopia was one of the only two countries to never really be colonized in the world and one of the few places on earth, in Africa at least, and one of the few places on earth Europeans didn't colonize alongside places like Japan and China and Thailand. But China and Thailand were kind of colonized to a degree. Japan and Ethiopia are really the only two that just don't get taken over by anybody. Even though these places would sometimes be controlled by European interests, Ethiopia managed to survive without having the land taken from him. Well, Tawar Aros was one of the reasons that happened. He had a good relationship with Christians and he took care of them. But one day, um he decided that he needed more guns for his country's defense, and so he took some Christian British missionaries and, and he took them captive. And he said basically, I'll trade you these Christian British missionaries uh, for some guns. That's all I want is some guns. Uh well, the British send an army and he releases them and the British kind of go back and then he kind of looks around and goes, I'm just going to do it again. So he does it again. And again, Taurados is a good guy. This is the only thing he does that's kind of a problem, but I think it's a problem. So he recaptures the British missionaries again. The British missionaries are like, we're well, not giving you any guns. And he goes, I'm not letting them go. And this begins a six year war with Britain. And this war is just so strange. It was very successful from a military perspective. The British hardly lost anybody. They'll win the battle, quote, quote, the battle, and get the hostages out. Yet it's a six-year complicated rescue mission. Um, It costs tons of money, and it's, it's a complete waste of time, basically. When they finally get to the city where the missionaries are being held hostage after six years of traveling, they've got guns and cannons that they've dragged across the desert, and the Ethiopians have spears. Uh, so you can imagine that wasn't much of a battle, but getting the cannons and materials there costs so much money and time to drag them through the desert just to have this one little battle. Tyrodaros, uh, ends up committing suicide because he's about to be captured, but he didn't hate the British people. He said, if he died, send my son to Britain because I don't want an Ethiopian killing him for the throne. And that's exactly what they do when he commits suicide. They take his son to Britain. And he gets raised uh, in Britain. Queen Victoria meets him multiple times, takes care of him. They pay for his schooling. They really like the son, uh, and it was just unfortunate that at 19 he kind of gets pneumonia and you know and dies. Unrelated, but the boy was safely taken care of by Britain. So this was not a war of hate or anything. It's just a weird war that they have with Britain for six years. Uh, one person at the time said it was the most expensive operation ever carried out in the name of honor on both sides, basically as they're leaving ethiopia with the missionaries that they rescued they then excavate a site that they didn't have access to and they basically for a year and a half dig up old things to take back to the museums uh in britain the missionaries didn't want to leave they begged them to leave them in ethiopia they take them back to britain and within a year all of them had returned to ethiopia (laughs) so good for them I mean, I don't even know what you make of that story other than this was just, all right, that's just the kind of things that happen. All in all, it's strange. But Ethiopia does not become a British colony. In the late 1800s, Italy tries to take Ethiopia, but Ethiopians at that point had gotten their hands on guns and they defeat the Italians. It was actually, a lot of times we say that Japan is the first one to beat defeat a European power when they defeat Russia. But actually, technically, Ethiopia, I think, beats them when they defeat Italy. So a little bit earlier. During the late 1800s and early 1900s, many missionaries from Protestant countries are coming to Ethiopia, but much like Estefanos and the Stephanites, they will be persecuted severely. There are stories of Christians that are just being persecuted, martyred, imprisoned, all these kinds of things. Um, and after that, they were invaded again during World War II. For a while, they were captured by Italy, but not considered a colony because they, you know, it was a resistance thing. It was a war. And they are the first country to get their freedom back once Italy is kind of pushed back and they help fight and for the Allies through World War II. Ethiopia kept a Solomonic emperor up until the 1970s. In the 1970s, Ethiopia gets kind of taken over by communism, or at least strains of violent communism. They don't technically, sometimes they call themselves communists, sometimes they don't, kills basically everybody. Um, and they were an actually communist country from 1987 to 1991. Then around 1994, they kind of become a republic. I will say I don't want to comment too much on Ethiopia's current politics because I don't understand it. So I'm just, you know, if you're a listener, you know somebody in Ethiopia go ask them what's going on. I'm going to end it right here at 1994 they call themselves a republic. Some people say there's still a strict dictatorship or something. like That other people are like, "No, we're totally free." I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't figure it out and I don't I don't want to comment on that. We're a history podcast, so we're going to say at 1994 they call themselves a republic. Part of Ethiopia does break off and form its own uh, communist country. It's called Eritrea now. They basically branch off and say, hey, we're not with the rest of Ethiopia. Um, They don't consider themselves a Western-style democracy. Eritrea is still very much a liberation communist country um, to this day and not a a great country you'd probably want to live in. Uh, between Islamic, communist, and Ethiopian Orthodox persecution, the, sadly, the lives of Protestants in Eritrea are not good. There's less than 40,000 of them, which is less than 1% of the population. And this is due to all the stuff you kind of would imagine, extreme communist presence, extreme Muslim uh, stuff going on. Eritrea is also the nation, you may have heard of this before, where they would take Christians and they would put them in shipping containers in the desert. If you've ever heard maybe that story of persecution, that was where it was happening, in Eritrea, this part of Ethiopia that branched off um, and became its own communist country. One girl was literally just a girl who had started attending a Bible study, had just barely been going, and they put her in a shipping container. And she was in there for two years before she had died. Um, And many Christians are just openly tortured in Eritrea. Eritrea doesn't really pretend that they're not anti-Christian. Um, even today, Ethiopia's government, on the other hand, uh, they, you know, they consider themselves <clears throat> Christian but it's this Orthodox Christianity. That's very different than the Christianity that you would see other places. They have licensing they give the churches and they directly monitor what is taught at the church. It's kind of similar to what you hear about in China, where they're, they're keeping tabs on what you're going to teach. They oversee hierarchies and they demand an Ethiopia loyalty to Ethiopia above all else. This doesn't go into some of the other problems in the Church of Ethiopia right now. They've got a huge oneness Pentecostal, Pentecostal, Pentecostalism,, wow, uh, movement going on that causes a lot of problems, and they also have a lot of Jehovah Witnesses actually for um, you know considering what's going on there. And so it's really difficult for, you know Protestant evangelicalism for what we would all consider Christianity to thrive very well. And that's kind of where it stands at the moment. Ethiopia has 120 million people. It's a very dense population, one of the densest places on earth. It's 67% Christian, but and 31% Islam. But remember that that 67% maybe 60% 40%. No one's sure with the continued migrations going on. But of that 60 to 70%, you know, 67, 60 or 70%, the actual Protestant number is probably closer to less than 10%. So it's not exactly an easy place. You say, you say to be less a than 10%. Yeah, I believe it's about 10% for didn't the you just Protestant.
2: Say, didn't you just say it works out to less than 1%?
1: Oh, that was Eritrea. Eritrea oh, has see. less than 1%. Ethiopia itself, next door where I Eritrea see. broke off, um, is again, probably less than 10%. It's not an easy place to be a Christian, especially if you're in one of those communities that's, you know, like the Oromo people who came in, they're still Islamic or whatever you happen to be. Um, and there's tons of stories of martyrs and stuff like that. Some of them probably end up on Elisa's podcast at some point. So, did Ethiopia's almost reformation affect Europe? And so, what do you, so what do you think, Joel?
2: Let me let me ask a couple questions. So, Go I ahead. will say it seems like th- this Christian nation of Ethiopia really wasn't very Christian for the majority of like there's pockets where it seems to be more yeah. Christianese, but I feel like again, I always felt like it had the stigma of like it was just a God-fearing, you know, like like Ooh, pre-America, yeah. before America <laughs> was around, like, in Ethiopia, like, this pocket. Oh, man. But- I mean, unless, not-
1: like, let's stop for there just a second, though, because, Joel, that's really important, actually. Like, this, I had to do a lot. One of the reasons this episode took so long is I do a lot of research because there are so many myths around what Ethiopia is. There's your myth, kind of like this free Christian state in Africa. But then there's this other myth that's really prevalent, especially right now, which is like this black liberation. No one could ever conquer them. Black power, Christian state in Ethiopia, too. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's out there. Uh, some people were even like claiming Judith, the woman who destroys the Axumite Empire, like this, you know, she's a strong woman and all this stuff. It's insane. Getting to the real story underneath all of that stuff is really hard because everyone has their own agenda of what they want Ethiopia to be. Mm hmm.
2: So, when most people are talking about, like, or the, the Church of Ethiopia, they're usually just talking about that, like, 20-year stint of, uh, what was his name again? Estefanos. Estefanos. Is, would you say that that's what people are usually referring to? I don't to? think
1: most people know about Estefanos. I think people don't really know enough about the Church of Ethiopia to be sure what they're really talking about. Hmm. Um And so I don't, maybe they're talking, maybe if you've heard people talk about an almost Reformation in Ethiopia, they might be talking about Stephanos, but I'm not sure that they really know. I think most people don't really know what's going on. What I would say is the church of Ethiopia is a lot like the church in Europe. At times, the church in Europe is doing good, right? Like you you Mm were a Christian in Rome in 200 AD meant something for sure, because you'd be martyred if you weren't. And being a Christian in Rome in 400 AD meant something. But by the year fourteen hundred, right? Like that—that mm-hmm. that doesn't mean you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You could just be saying that, right? Um, and that's kind of what I view Ethiopia like. There were times when they were walking with God. At the Teredaro's guy, the guy who took the Christian hostages, but like he actually seems like a really decent guy that everyone loved until that moment. Um, and I think there were probably moments where they were really walking close to the faith. And then there were moments they weren't much like the actual Israel that they were kind of modeling themselves after. There were times where they were good. There were times where they were bad. I think there were moments where Ethiopia seemed to have a good head on their shoulders. And then, especially in that time when Estefano shows up, they really had lost their way. And mm. sadly, Estefano's was not able to drive them back to where they needed to get to.
2: If the, if the real hero of this story is is the hermit, right? Well, the unknown. Yeah, it's true. The you know angel like figure it seems almost like that, that yeah. came out of the shadows to to share this. Uh, would you say? I mean, when we look at the Protestant Reformation in Europe. You know, a lot of that comes from the mass is not having great. Uh, uh, access to scriptures you know it's all in latin if you could even get it mm-hmm. get your hands on top of that and so just the majority of people didn't even know what scriptures could say let alone you know before luther came along and translated it to german um would you say that was kind of a similar issue going on there in ethiopia
1: i don't know that- how much they were kept from being able to read and you know read it um, it does seem like they had access to the Bible because remember yeah. when Estefanos gets the right idea of it, he starts copying scriptures and selling it. It doesn't seem to be a problem. Mm-hmm. And so he had access to a Bible and no one was like, hey, people can't read that. So it was but just it was, it was just
2: so much of the culture that was just... Yeah.
1: It seems so. like they just weren't teaching it. It was like the Bible was sitting there and no one knew how to read it. Almost Like they mm-hmm. knew how to read the words, but they didn't understand what they were reading and nobody... It, the teaching on it was so distorted that even though the Bible was right in front of them and anyone was allowed to read it, you know, in, in the Catholic ways, you had to have Latin. You had to have all these things. There doesn't seem to be that barrier. And yet these people don't see it at all. And it's I think almost, it's kind of... Go ahead. What were you about to say? I was going to say Mormonism.
2: Okay. I was going to say it's almost like the the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts. How am I supposed to know what
1: I'm looking <laughs> oh, at unless wow. someone explains that's it? That's actually really, you're, you're oh, not sorry. wrong, actually. It's right there in front of them. They don't see it. I right? was going go, it's almost like Mormonism where they have Mormons have the Bible, but then they have this other book of all this extra stuff and it so messes mm. with them, right? And that's kind of what's going on here in Ethiopia. Like they have the Bible right in front of them, but they have all this extra stuff of kings and queens and Solomonic lines and Arks of the Covenants and New Jerusalem. They have all this extra stuff. And so they're completely lost until someone comes over and goes like it's just jesus mm-hmm. it's just jesus faith in him alone do we have any evidence is there any paper
2: trail that luther
1: or uh, some of it, our lined me reformers. up for it thank you yeah. so let me tell you here's why i can say with extreme certainty no the church of ethiopia did not okay. inspire the reformation but with a caveat that the idea of ethiopia influenced the reformers here's what i mean uh-huh. Martin Luther and the reformers knew of Ethiopia's existence, and Luther pointed to Ethiopia as evidence that the Protestants did not have to stay with the Catholic Church. They said, look, there are other churches that are outside the Catholic sphere, and they're doing just fine. And they point over at Ethiopia, and they say, Ethiopia was a big evidence. It came up multiple times, like, what Catholic Church? Are you saying Ethiopia is not Christian? You guys can't control everything the Ethiopians seem to be doing fine. This was a really big deal, because remember, the Catholics said, if you don't read Latin, if you don't pay your indulgences, so the Pope doesn't let you out, you're going to hell, right? And the Greek Orthodox mm-hmm. and the Church of Ethiopia were the, hey, You can't say they're unfaithful, and if you can't say they're unfaithful, we can break away from you too, and we're fine. And that's actually really important. They needed that to bolster their case. And that way, Ethiopia had a very positive effect on the Reformers. Calvin mentioned it in his book of John that, oh, wow, it's amazing that there's these languages. And he said, because uh, Jesus was written in different, you know, Jesus's name was written in different languages, we're allowed to write the Bible in different languages. And then he pointed over to Ethiopia. because Ethiopia doesn't write it in Latin. And yet their church is doing just fine. Remember, you had to write the Bible in Latin. And Calvin used Ethiopia to argue, you don't have to do that. He specifically pointed to Ethiopia as one of those places, like, this is your proof that you are wrong. And after Calvin, Theodore... Theodore, Theodore Beza, he really used Ethiopia a lot in his arguments. So again, Ethiopia as an idea was actually really important to the Reformers. So when you hear people today kind of go, oh, Ethiopia was never Christian. No, the Reformers, nobody thought that until like really recently that nothing in Ethiopia was Christian. But here's the problem. The Ethiopia that they're pointing at is the Ethiopia that got rid of the Estefanos. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like they're going, look, Ethiopia's fine. That's the same Ethiopia that had just wiped out Estefanos. They don't, they don't know about Estefanos. They don't know about the Stephanites. That book and that stuff doesn't get this get, get this really discovered till much later. The Stephanites don't survive, and they don't make it to Europe to tell their story. And so when they're pointing to Ethiopia and going, look at the Church of Ethiopia, Ethiopia seems to be Christian doing just fine. Ironically. They're pointing at the very church that 100 years earlier killed Estefanos and had just finished wiping out the Stephanites pretty much at the time they're getting pointed to as evidence of a good church outside of uh, the Reformation. You see what I'm saying? But they
2: don't know that. That's unknown. They
1: don't know anything about Estefanos. If the Reformers had heard about Estefanos, they might have liked him. But if they had heard about him, the only people that ever come from Ethiopia are deacons and they're people who are priests and people who are in you know, the actual official Ethiopian church, they're not going to tell them, hey, you guys are doing something cool here. Let me tell you about Estefanos, the guy who just got through burning and his movement, right? They all officially still recognize him as a heretic. So they certainly did back then. And so they were going to be like, you guys remind us of the Stephanites. That wasn't going to happen because they didn't like the Stephanites. So there was no one to tell them the story of the Stephanites or of Estefanos and all those cool things that were happening. That I would imagine the reformers would have loved it Had they known about it, but there's no way they could have possibly known about it. Now, Luther did actually famously meet with an Ethiopian deacon named Michael in 1534. And they did discuss theology. And Luther kind of shared with him what they were doing. The deacon famously said, Luther, you've got a great creed. We think what you're doing is good. And likewise, Luther said, I love you guys in the Ethiopian church. We offer communion to those in the Ethiopian church you know, um, Luther didn't offer communion to the Hussites and they didn't offer communion to Zwingli's people, but he offered communion to the Ethiopian church. He said, these guys are Christians. But again, this would have been an Ethiopian deacon who would have seen Stephanite as a heretic. And at that point, the Stephanites were gone already. There's no way they would have been talking about the Stephanites. This wouldn't have come up. The Ethiopians were against the Stephanites. It's highly unlikely Luther had ever heard of the Stephanites and there's no evidence that any of them ever heard of the name Estefanos It never goes mentioned. And it makes sense. If your only contact with Ethiopia is the official Ethiopian church and you're offering communion to them, what does the Stephanites matter to you? If they had known about them, they would have, again, I think they would have agreed with and liked the Stephanites in theory, but they just they never got a chance to hear about them. And there's no evidence anywhere, everywhere that they ever knew about any of that stuff going on. Uh, some people point to the meeting with Michael the deacon as evidence that Martin Luther was deeply persuaded by the Ethiopian church to start the Reformation. But of course, this makes no sense uh, because it was already 17 years after nailing the 95 Theses and the Reformation was well underway. All, we're already way past the Diet hmm. of Worms and all that stuff. So at, at this point, Calvin is almost to Geneva. Um, so, I mean, we're the Reformation is very much going. Zwingli's already dead and several Protestants have been martyred across England. So there's, the Reformation's going. This Michael deacon meeting Again, positive um but it didn't and i'm not gonna say it had zero effect but i'm just saying it, the, the reformation's in full swing it would be as if saying world war ii did not start until the d-day invasion world war ii was happening for years the d-day invasion was just you know one more step in that and, and to be honest the d-day invasion is giving a lot more credence than this luther deacon thing right. which certainly would be a much smaller affair How much did the Lord? And again, how much did the Luther and the reformers really know the Ethiopian Church? Even though the Ethiopian Church occasionally sent people to Europe, and not a lot of Europeans made that trip back. And again, the Portuguese came to Ethiopia, but we don't see any evidence that any of the reformers did. If they had visited Ethiopia, would they have liked what they have seen? Would they have been okay with all the different things going—the Mary worship, the bowing to the king, and all that stuff? I'm not really sure that they would have. Right? Like the deacon is going to sell you the best version of Ethiopia. He's not going to tell you all the practices that they don't agree with. So once once again, many times, I don't think these people would have seen necessarily eye to eye. I think they would have loved Estefano's, but he was gone. Finally, it's important to note that this whole episode is not e- endorsing the Ethiopian church today. Um, we, we do not I feel like what's if going anything, on. We've kind of thrown yeah. it under the bus. <laughs> well, I kind of think it's probably not the best. I, I don't uh, and I even kind of think it's probably not the best. That's a really soft. I am gonna say it, it's not the best. What they're doing right now it does not seem good. And there are many good um, people who are trying to spread the faith in Ethiopia. And we should be praying for them. Uh, like I said, about 10% of Ethiopia is considered Protestant. They face severe persecution, not just from Islamic people, and not just from the Oromo people who are still there, the Somali people um, that are trying to push their things. But the Orthodox Ethiopian church is just as much of a problem and according to voice of the martyrs they are just as likely to persecute you and make your life difficult as anyone else will again for whatever we can say about the history of the ethiopian church and kind of those different moments where the faith was strong this current ethiopia is not one of those moments and so there you have the story of the almost reformation and the very long history of ethiopia and i do feel very confident we can say that as interesting and tragic as the story is it is not where we get the protestant reformation in europe
2: so people that are making that connection, you know, your coffee shop co- coffee shop conversation, where they're saying, you know, isn't the Protestant Reformation just stolen from? Wh- where does that stem from? Like, where are the, where are people making those assumptions, those connections?
1: Like so much, if you've been listening to this and you've listened through the three parts, you probably have heard a probably a lot of stuff you you didn't know. Um, and you also probably learned that, like you said, there were things that you thought Ethiopia was that you didn't actually weren't actually true. And that's this kind of thing. Ethiopia gets mythologized and gets used by all these different groups of people. And and the real truth is that, you know, from my research, what I'm seeing is, is not those things. And so whoever is saying that, um, I, get, I don't know. They could just be saying it because they saw Estefanos had similar ideas 100 years before. Mm-hmm. But again, John Huss did, too uh you know these weren't the first people to have these ideas at the same time though it just seems like whoever was doing it is trying to take away from Martin Luther and some of these guys mm-hmm. and try to pass it to someone else uh for whatever reason that might be and 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 you know we would like the idea that they they don't have the free flow of communication that we do today if something happens around the world if someone doesn't come and tell you or the book doesn't get out you don't know and the thing was no one told them the book didn't get out they didn't know and so there's just mm-hmm. no way for this to cross over
2: fascinating i feel like i've learned a lot i feel like i'm i feel like i'm much more equipped at uh at handling this topic matter when it comes <laughs> up in conversation
1: and it does i mean let me tell you it's such a boy you can hardly go to dunkin donuts and order a croissant without them being <laughs> like by the way what do you think ethiopia you know let um, me tell you something it's a great it's a great story i love doing this i it, it's turned into our definitely our longest deep dive by like an hour but I really found this whole story interesting. Sad, again, really most of it just kind of sad. Um, yeah, it's a little bit. Uh, it's a little bit. Uh, yeah, you're hoping for better stuff. You're
2: hoping. Yeah, you, you're hoping to be surprised do. by how awesome it was, and, and and instead, I'm surprised at how kind of uneventful it, <laughs> it all it all ended up being.
1: Yeah, it's almost like an. It really is an alternate history. You know, if you ever ask yourself the question, "What would have happened if Martin Luther and them had died, and they had not been successful?" look at ethiopia today and you're kind of like okay that's probably what it would look like in europe like that's how razor thin the margin was but then again it almost happened in ethiopia and it didn't and then 100 years later it happens in europe would a god have just been like oh okay and, you know moved it over to some other group of people maybe hmm. had that happen like that was going this was going to happen somewhere at some point the church needed to change and so you know regardless it was going to happen at some point or maybe ethiopia stands as just a tragic cautionary tale I'm not sure. I hope people learned learned a lot from it. I hope people can find some things to apply from it. I think if anything, it's just, it is kind of a sadder story of what happens to Christians when they're on their own and they're not able to lean on on others for support. Well, listeners,
2: thank you so much uh, for tuning in to this edition of the Deep Dive uh, series here. We, I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty I, I don't want to say hundred percent guarantee, but I'm pretty confident it will not be such a big gas of chasm until no, the no. next deep dive series. Again, we we were a little bit uh complicated by um some events going on here in, in Troy again moving countries uh, twice that <laughs> ended up uh contributing towards the, the big gap between previous deep dive editions, but um, we already have our next one lined up and hopefully it'll only be a few more months until we can bring up the next deep dive and get ideally we want to do like them quarterly right like once every three months or so uh and so hopefully we can keep to that uh to that schedule there that's that'd be the plan see you next year guys (laughs) (laughs) no no (laughs) (laughs) well i guess at this right i guess we are uh september
1: right now so that's nice i met see you like in 2024 at the current pace yeah, of how I these know. are going
2: <laughs> uh and i'm, we hope trying, that to, won't I'm trying to encourage our listeners no, that that will not i will be tell the, the
1: listener i we already know where we're going next and it won't it will not take as long i'm really excited for the next episodes of deep dive so can't tell you what it is yet but we know where we're going and it's going to take a lot less time so but, yeah, and of course if you
2: ever have any recommendations you, you, you've seen Troy's researching skills they're very good he, 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 when he knows something he knows he, he, he digs into all the crevices uh, revive thoughts at gmail.com send us some recommendations we'd love to explore and, and you know kind of do a deep dive on on listener recommended subject matter so if you have any suggestions let us know and we can uh, add it to the list
1: all right this is Troy and Jill and you're listening to revive Thoughts